The title for my two sermons today are parts five and six. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 15. We've been there for a little while, a few weeks, two weeks, I think. Luke chapter 15 is a pretty well-known section of Luke's gospel, especially toward the end where you have this lost son parable, which we'll get to at some point. This scenario here is somewhat typical in Jesus' ministry. Notice verse 1, that all the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, the, the people that the religious elite looked down on, and didn't like, okay? Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. So we have this, we don't know how large, a crowd of people drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And here's the religious smug noses. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So you remember they're, looking down their noses, not only at the tax collectors and sinners, but at Jesus. They're mumbling, grumbling, sniveling, whining, because Jesus is doing something. What is he doing? He's receiving sinners and and eating with them. He's doing the very thing he came to the earth for. The Son of Man uh, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for meaning. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says. Makes, that's in First Timothy. Makes me wonder if Paul might have read Luke 15. I think he did. But notice what, how Jesus responds in verse 3. So he spoke this parable to them saying, now, uh, saying, now the to them is very interesting because if you take it to refer to the immediate persons mentioned in verse 3, it would be aimed exclusively at the Pharisees and scribes. But the them is wider, so even though I think what he's going to say really has oomph and punch power uh, primarily toward the Pharisees and scribes, it's also for the sinners and tax collectors. And by the time you get to chapter 16, you realize The disciples of our Lord were also there. He also said to his disciples. So the disciples are there, a group of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Matter of fact, the disciples could be included in the tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes were not told how many. But he said this parable to them. What man among you? So he's asking a question. Excuse me. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, If he loses one of them, so this man is a shepherd, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99, we could put this in quotes, just or righteous persons who think they need no repentance. 
So he tells them a parable. Parable. Uh, what is a parable? A parable is a storytelling device for theological and spiritual purposes. And what it does, what parables do, is they use metaphors, usually a string of metaphors, and there's a, there's a lot of metaphors here, where a thing, a man, stands for another thing, where a sheep stands for another thing. The man here, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, refers to Jesus, I believe, uh, and he goes out from these 99 others, the others are going to think, the Pharisees and scribes are going to think that these 99 others are not sheep, they're also shepherds, because they're shepherds. Part of the irony here is that Jesus actually gives them implicitly the title of a sheep, because he leaves 99 sheep for a one sheep. Some have wondered, how can the Pharisees and scribes earn the title of being sheep of God? Well, they were part of the fold. That's my grandson. They were part of the fold of ancient Israel, right? It doesn't mean they were saved. He leaves them in the wilderness, the lost place, and he goes after another. Now, we have looked at verses 1 through 4. I think we started verse 5 last week. Notice in verse 5, when he has found it, when, when, when the one man among the other shepherds of Israel who are bad shepherds, when the one went from them and he found a sheep, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Some make a, an issue about plural there, not shoulder, but shoulders. What does that signify? We'll get to there. Rejoicing. And when he comes home, now notice he comes home, he doesn't go back to the 99 that he left, he goes elsewhere. He calls together his friends and neighbors. Now these are signifying something. Who are his friends? Who are his neighbors? We'll get there in a second. Saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. This is a festive occasion, there's a lot of joy uh, by the shepherd, but also he's calling whoever his friends and neighbors are to rejoice in the fact that one sheep has been found and brought home, safe place, supposed to be, is in this case. Okay, so he finds his lost sheep. Uh, I believe we already, I already covered that uh, section there. He finds his, his lost sheep. Remember that? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of, uh, of us all to fall on him. Christ, Benjamin Keach says, by the way, Benjamin Keach is our friend. He's a late 17th, early 18th century British English pastor, okay? He's one of the guys connected to our confession of faith. Listen to what he says. Christ finding the lost sheep signifies his meeting with a sinner by the powerful conviction of his word and spirit. For when the word hath, hath, hath fastened upon a sinner's heart and conscience, then Christ may be said to have found the lost sheep. See what he says? 
I read a longer quote from John Gill last week, basically saying the same thing. This is a, a picture, a word picture of the salvation of a sinner by virtue of the work, uh, by virtue of the work of Christ for them and illustrating the work of Christ in them as well. Because that sheep was lost and it's not going to go home on its own. It has to be found. It has to be picked up. It has to be laid on the shepherd's shoulders, plural, and walked home, all signifying the salvation that Christ wrought and brought and brings to any and every one who believes. Now, we're going to pick up where it says he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. That's in the middle of verse 5 or toward the end. When he has found it, I covered that last week, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, if you've been here for some of the sermons, you know that I am relying on the Old Testament big time to help us understand what these metaphors are signifying, okay? By the way, in one sense, a sign is a metaphor. Los Angeles, 52 miles. It's a a sign like that on the freeway is signifying something from you, something far from you, something other than the sign itself, right? When it says Los Angeles 52, you don't go, I'm in Los Angeles 52, is that a street, an avenue, 52nd Avenue? You realize it's a thing that's pointing to another thing. Okay, that's what we have here. And here we have him. Jesus says he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now these, remember the bad shepherds? They're hearing this. The bad shepherds were indicted by Old Testament prophets. Jesus dips back into the Old Testament uh, prophets in the contexts where it's speaking about the future, by the way, the future is now, if we're standing with Jesus and hearing him, that which the prophet said would take place with reference to God sending great David's greater son in the midst of bad shepherds, tending the sheep like they ought to be tended. That's what's happening right now. All of that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But something else helps us in terms of this passage, this laying it on his shoulders rejoicing. Some other passage that we haven't looked at does. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, uh, those are metaphors, by the way. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So the lost sheep here in this story is not only found, he's picked up by the shepherd and carried. You think that signifies anything? I think it does. The sheep goes from being lost to found, from danger to safety, from the wilderness to home, from bewilderment and confusion to the safe arms of his strong shepherd. So if I was Spurgeon, I'll be a little Spurgeonic now, methinks brothers and sisters who have come to Christ, those of us who are true believers, we are getting a picture into how Christ has saved us in the past. You didn't deserve him chasing after you. You didn't deserve 
the, the grace that came to your soul when the word was read or preached or, or witnessed to you or whatever, but you got it. And not only did you get conviction of sin, you got the gift of, gifts of repentance and faith. You were united powerfully to Christ in such a way as you can't get out of his grip. This is what's being illustrated here for Christians. Listen to what Keats says. Shoulders, I love how he does this. Shoulders, he's going to say, shoulders denote something. They mean something. They're pointing to something. Are they pointing to Jesus' physical shoulders? I was saved in 1984. Jesus came into my apartment and he threw me on his shoulders. No. Here's what he says. Shoulders denotes, the sign signifying something else, the great power or strength of Christ as it is put forth or exerted in working upon a rebellious sinner and bringing him home when Christ is said to carry his lambs in his arms and lay them in his bosom. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 14. That implies his great love. So he says, the Isaiah text that I read implies his great love, carries his lambs in his arms and lay them in his bosom. Figure of speech, of course. But notice what he does now. But when he is said to take them up and lay them upon his shoulders, that denotes his almighty power. I like that. Here we were, helpless. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're out there blind, wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness, in an unsafe place, in the palms of the hands of the wicked one. Jesus comes and steals. The stronger one comes and steals from the devil his rightful property. Another man adds, they are brought by the power of divine grace as trophies of it as to their own home and such that Christ takes into his arms and on his shoulders, he never drops them till he has brought them safe to heaven. He threw them on his shoulders rejoicing. He tripped over a rock. The sheep fell off his back, died and went to hell. That's not the story, right? It's impossible to happen because these are signs signifying divine power in execution, terminating on the souls of lost sinners and bringing them into the sphere of salvation. Uh, um, that would be really weird, you know, if somebody said, you know what, this shepherd didn't trip, but this time, but he trips sometimes and he drops sheep. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. They're in the Father's hand, they're in the Son's hand. You remember I told you I was listening to a radio preacher one time and he says, no one can snatch them out of the divine hands, but you can jump out. It's like, I wanted to reach through the radio and you know, slap them, figure of speech. There's wonderful truths in here. Notice as well in verse six, he comes home with the found. So he finds the lost. Then he comes not back to the others. So the 99, the Pharisees and scribes, who were shepherds, who Jesus says this man, him, in the midst of him, leaves them and does his work of redemption. But he doesn't take the sheep back to those bad shepherds, does he? 
He comes home with the found, not back into the wilderness where the 99 were left. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Um, We could say, Mission accomplished. It's now time to celebrate at home. Shepherds, excuse me, in that day didn't always find their sheep, which would bring shame upon them, but this one does. which makes this a very effective shepherd, isn't he? It's not like typical shepherds. All right, I'm going to pin you guys up for a while. I'm going to go look for this sheep. Three hours later, comes back with his head down. This one finds the loss. Uh, You know the verses. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what we're seeing here. I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice back into my apartment in 1984. Did I hear an an audible voice? No. I was reading the Bible. I was going to church as a lost person, and I was terrified. At some point, lights went on. Bells rang, figure of speech. Whistles went off. And I realized, not probably didn't realize from Luke 15, but Looking back now, what I was actually realizing was I was a lost sheep that was being found by Jesus. Christ finds the lost, but notice where he takes him, home. And when he comes home, now you could say, well, that means heaven. Or you could ask the question, does Jesus have a home or house, you know, on the earth? Here's what I think. Christ brings lost sinners home to God, first in the church, and then absent from the body, present with the Lord, at home with the Lord in heaven. Isn't Keats? Jesus Christ has two homes. The church upon earth is his home. There he dwells. Zion is his home and habitation or dwelling place forever. Zion, the place where God's people gather. Heaven is his home. Okay, so he says, the church upon earth is his home. There he dwells. Heaven is his home. That is, his upper house palace and principal place of abode. Two homes. Very interesting. Gill says, the friends of Christ are the saints. Who are the neighbors? Because he says friends and neighbors. I think the friends of Christ are the saints on the earth. Is it all the saints on the earth? No. It's all the saints that hear about the one lost sheep found. Um, Our recent baptism was a rejoicing because a sheep had been found by Christ, and we all rejoiced together through the whole process, even though it took way long to finally get baptized. Christ tells us that rejoicing is appropriate when the lost are found. 
Keats says this, when Christ brings a lost sinner home or unto his house or church on earth, he stirreth up all his saints and members there to rejoice. The saints below rejoice. Have you ever done that? Yes. The pastor announces, so-and-so has made a, pro- a, a profession of faith in Christ. I've been meeting with the person. I think it's a, it's a bona fide legitimate profession of faith in Christ. We're going to have a baptism and add a new sinner to our church membership. And everybody says, boo. Nobody says that, right? But notice what he says. He stirreth up all his saints that hear these things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Joy is caused to rise up in us by virtue of the work of the Spirit toward and in us. So when we express joy among ourselves as churchmen, because somebody has been saved, found, even that is not just natural, it is supernatural work of grace in our souls. Gil says, with joy, he brings them into his church, which is his house and their home, where he rejoices over them to do them good. That's, he's quoting the Old Testament there. I still haven't answered the question. Who are the neighbors? I suppose somebody could say, well, the friends are Jewish believers and the neighbors are Gentile believers. I don't know if anybody argues that. Somebody probably does. The neighbors... The guys I like the best say it's probably referring to angels. Because as we keep reading, the angels in heaven rejoice when things happen on the earth connected to Christ and salvation. So this rupture between sheep and shepherd has been repaired. But the Pharisees and scribes are not only not rejoicing, they are complaining that Christ interacts with sinners. It's just, it's mind-boggling. Dude, there's a dead sinner out there, dead in their trespasses and sins. You won't preach the proper message to them, so I have come down to do that, and I do it, not only did it, not only when I was on the earth, but I do it now from heaven by virtue of my spirit blessing the word that comes to sinners all over the world and I draw them effectually to myself and I go plant them in churches and you don't like it. I don't think that's what he doesn't like. You should love these people. Uh, What did Paul say? You are our joy. He said that to the Thessalonians. That's a shepherd. I love the people of God that I minister to. By the way, I do boast like that. I tell, when I travel and people say, tell me about your church, I said, I am utterly spoiled. I think people, I know people love me because they're commanded to, but I think most of the people actually like me too. They come back, you know, it's like amazing. Now notice that he doesn't say, the shepherd took the sheep home and spent the evening petting, feeding, and grooming the lost sheep like a man who had just found a lost, much-beloved dog or something. He doesn't take the, the sheep home and say, wow, what a great sheep you are. 
Because of your greatness, I went and got you. This is all about, this is about you. It's not about me. I just did my job. It's all about you. You, you are important. It's nothing like that. He does not say rejoice with us for the sake of the found sheep. He says rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. It's not about the found one. What's this celebration all about? Praising the finder, right? We don't praise the found one. Wow, I'm proud of you. You repented and you believed. We say praise the Lord, because we know just in that sentence, somebody confesses their sin, repents, and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to get baptized and join the church. When you say praise the Lord, you realize how much theology's in that statement? Because if you stopped and I said, what do you mean by praise the Lord? Well, they were a lost sheep and the Lord chased after them and found them. Oh, that's in your statement, praise the Lord? Yes. So you believe that they were totally depraved and, and totally unable to un, uh, un, undo all the wrongs of their life? They were totally unable to change their spots, their stains? Yes. You believe they were blind and couldn't see straight and recognize God and their own sins and Christ for what those things are? Yes. All that's connected to your statement, praise the Lord? Yes. Wow, you're a theologian, aren't you? I, we are better theologians sometimes than we realize because I think all of us would say, praise the Lord, you repented and came to your spiritual senses. And we would all basically, at least our church members, we'd mean the same thing by it without giving all the you know, total depravity and total inability and unconditional election and particular redemption and irresistible uh, grace and preservation by God. But it's all in the statement, praise the Lord, because we know what happens we, knew, we know the invisible things that are happening when a sinner really comes to Christ. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now listen to Psalm 23, 1 through 3. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. See that? He makes me do something. Lie down in green pastures. What a terrible thing. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now watch this. For his name's sake. God the shepherd saves the sheep for his name's sake. He upholds his name in the salvation of sinners. He has promised to save all who come to Christ on his terms, and he does it, and then, and therefore, the rejoicing back at home, back at church, is all God-centered and not man-centered. You're great because you repented and believed. No, God's great. The party is in honor of the finder and not the found. Party, figure of speech. Um, 
We could even go farther, and I think Benjamin Keach does. Okay, Why are these friends of Christ, let's say fellow church members, rejoicing in the one person that gets saved? First of all, because when they say praise the Lord, all the theology can, that we talked about before is in their statement. All that transpired. Rejoice with me. Just, just on the day you hear it? No, it's probably a perpetual rejoicing. Could it be even, and I think Keach does this, culminating in not their profession of faith, not their baptism, not their connection formally to a local congregation, but public worship and the Lord's Supper itself. You can go all kinds of different directions if you allow the Bible to help you interpret these things. Sometimes when I say things, especially off the notes like I'm doing now, you might go, I I don't know about that. Well, I could be wrong. Sorry, I've said wrong things before behind this pulpit, never on purpose. But it is this festive thing, this rejoice with me. He throws it on his shoulders rejoicing. And what does he do? He brings that sinner to a local church and he calls the members of the church to rejoice along with him. It's a great thing. Now in the culture of the first century, because you remember, there's two things that feed the proper interpretation of parables. One is the Old Testament. I think that's the major thing. Uh, The second is the culture, okay, because these are cultural things that we have to kind of strip ourselves of 21st century antelope valley. Well, we don't have to. There's probably sheep that you've seen out here. I don't know if you've ever seen that. When I, where I grew up, there were sheep all the time during the uh, whatever time of year. The French and Spanish Basque shepherds would come down from the foothills, and they'd, they'd come to the farmer that had alfalfa, and he said, can I put my sheep there? So we, I could see it. I could connect a little more. But in the first culture of the first century, custom required eating and drinking at such a celebration, okay? That's interesting. Okay, so they're going to have a celebration. They're going to eat and drink. Take. Eat. This is my body. Take. Drink. This is my blood. Could there be a connection there? Of course, there could be, and I'll just leave it at that. The Pharisees and scribes would have known this instantly, that some sort of celebration meant eating and drinking. Jesus' story, then, is punching all the buttons of the Pharisees and scribes. I think if we were there with the knowledge we now have of this parable, we'd be going, ooh, when he said certain things, because we realized... This dude's getting under their skin, and he's pointing the finger right at their soul. Thou art guilty. His point is this. I came from heaven to earth. I am God in the midst of the people of Israel. I am the fulfillment of the good shepherd of the Old Testament. I am great David's greater son. I am here to rebuke you, Pharisees and scribes, in accordance with the Old Testament prophets. I am God's final prosecuting attorney, his final and much greater prophet. But I am here, much more importantly, to find the lost, 
to hold the honor, uphold the honor of my name. This is a God thing. It's not, I don't want to put too much attention on the Pharisees and scribes getting rebuked. They are getting rebuked, but the more important thing is, is the incarnation, sufferings and glory of Christ and the application of his redemptive work to sinners all throughout the world, all throughout the ages, Jew, Greek, doesn't matter, including us. That's the big thing. Sinners of all sorts are wandering, wandering around this world in grave danger. Danger of which they are not totally aware. All we like sheep have gone astray. Okay, you see a stray sheep out from the fold. Does that sheep realize, especially if there's, you know, out in the wilderness, there's going to be wolves, coyotes. Well, coyotes are too wimpy to get sheep, but wolves. Are sheep that are out there wandering aware of the danger that they're really in? No. You were out there, believer, at one point in your life, wandering around blind. A locomotive could have hit you at any second and God would have been just to send you to ultimate perdition in hell. But that didn't happen. And then suddenly, you came to yourself. By the way, the lost son comes to himself because he was caused to come to himself. You don't come to yourself and go, the, I am the man. Remember, was it Nathan to David? Thou art the man. He told, he told him a parable, and he said, thou art the man. At some point, true believers in Christ said, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm the guilty person. I'm the sinner. This is my fault. I have demerit and no merit. And if I'm going to be right with God, I need merit that I can't merit myself. And I can't deal with my demerit, my guilt. I need help from outside. What do you need? I have come down from heaven to give my life for the sinful world of mankind. So here are these sheep out there in grave danger, danger of which they are not totally aware. Jesus is basically saying, I'm saving sinners. I'm rejoicing with them. And others are rejoicing and will rejoice all throughout the age until he comes again for his name's sake. Sinners will be saved, brought into communities called local churches, and they'll all rejoice together, and hopefully that cycle doesn't stop with just one. More come in, more rejoice. And more rejoice and give praise, not to each other, not to the sinner who came and was saved and joined the church and all that stuff, but to the Savior of the sinner. I am receiving glory, basically, Jesus says. I'm receiving worship in my action as the good shepherd, and you're against me. You got big problems, Pharisees and scribes. Get with the program. You read, you've totally misread the Old Testament. You don't get it, we could say. And then he concludes in verse 7, I say to you that likewise... There will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Well, we'll look at that at the next hour. Believe it or not, I had more material, but I skipped some of it because I didn't want to overwhelm. I think you get the gist of this. What's the gist of it? Jesus, through this parable, is both rebuking the Pharisees and scribes, comforting his disciples and the tax collectors and sinners who believed in him, calling other tax collectors and sinners who don't believe him to really put their thinking caps on, read, listen to the story through the lens of the Old Testament and their culture a little, and conclude that Jesus is doing the very thing he was sent to the earth to do, saving sinners. I will build my church. What happens when he adds a little brick into the onto the walls of one of, uh, of our church membership. We rejoice. Just think of other congregations, our size, which is small, or, or, or larger. Just think if it happened to us. In one month, the month of June, three people were added. There would be a lot of joy here, wouldn't there? Guess where else there would be joy? The angels in heaven would rejoice. Why? Because they love to see the mediator who they assist quite often. They love to see the mediator get his sheep. Things into which angels long to look. Remember that in 1 Peter 1.12? What are they longing to look into? The things that the prophets spoke about that would occur in the future and that the apostles preached about in the first century. What are those things? The sufferings and the glories of the mediator, of the Messiah. The prophets spoke about a future day where this Servant of the Lord would suffer for others and enter into glory on behalf of others. And the angels are going, whoa. Things into which angels long to look. Churches add sinners to their church membership roles. And this glorifies God. And this encourages saints. So, May the Lord bless his word, and we're going to sing a hymn after I pray. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for parables. We thank you that they don't sit out there all by themselves, but they're couched, this one, within uh, 24 chapters of the book of Luke, which is couched in the, the Gospels, which is couched in the New Testament, which itself is couched within the entirety of Holy Scripture. We thank you that we have the written word of God that often helps us understand, for instance, like par- parables like this one. We bless you, O Lord Jesus, that you didn't leave all of us out there in the wilderness Blind, starving, no clothes, no righteousness, only guilt and shame, messed up lives, heading in a worse direction. We thank you that you came, you sought us out, you found us, you cleaned us up, you took us 
into a church. We grew. We're growing still to this day. We, others rejoiced in you finding the lost. This is all about us as creatures being saved and expressing our thankfulness back to you for saving us and others. Please work these things in us. Um, we pray you bless your word to the lost and the saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.